Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. That song was called Premature Burial. It's by someone that, I don't know, maybe was inevitable someday would be on our show, Susie and the Banshees. It's from their 1979 album, Join Hands, that was released by Polydor Limited. It's appropriate for this episode. Terrifying subject matter. Is the movie terrifying? Tell us what it is. We've got a little bit of Roger Corman. We've got some Edgar Allan Poe. We've got some Lovecraft. We've got some... Ray Milan, and we've got some Vincent Price. We are taking a look at two of the Roger Corman Poe films, Premature Burial from 1962 and The Haunted Palace from 1963. When you're looking at the Corman Poe films, there's obviously some strong connective tissue between all of them because they were a lot of them were made within a, a short succession of time, really what 1960 was the was the start of the the cycle yes um follow the house of usher was the first one he wanted to do mask of the red death first but the uh, seventh seal had just been released and so he wanted to hold off on that they did kind of fire him out one right after the other after the other which kind of goes why when we get to the haunted palace he was wanting to kind of stir up a little bit and get away from poe and do some lovecraft which ultimately he did, but Lovecraft really didn't get any credit. It was Poe who got all the credit because they wanted to keep up the whole concept of Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe. And it was a bit of a stretch. Haunted Palace was a lot of first for Lovecraft, and it'll be fun when we get to that one. The fall season is upon us, and Halloween is right around the corner. And I don't know what could be more Halloween-y than Roger Corman and Vincent Price and Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Speaking of all those names, I'm going to drop a couple others. I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com. We've got a lot ahead of us, so let's call this meeting of the Classic Horrors Club to order. Old business. We have some feedback. This came from Steve Sullivan. He sent several messages about our episode with Reptilicus and... Godzilla versus the thing. He said, Hey, you have to tell me how your Danish Danish Reptilicus DVD turns out, if it's a good print transfer and all that. And I believe when we recorded, I had not 
watched that yet. I have since received that and watched it. And I will just say, to me, I enjoyed it much better. A lot of the things that we picked at were not even present in this version. It's still not, you know, A plus classic, but I definitely would recommend it. And I replied to Steve and told him, yes, if you can find it. Steve loves that goofy film and he has it in HD because the Blu-ray went out of print and became expensive quickly. He also has a copy of the paperback that we talked about, and it is very much sexier. Last he knew, you could get it on Kindle for about $10. He says it's worth it for the laughs. Now he moves into Godzilla. Oh, and Godzilla's face shakes more because, if he recalls, the supports in the face of the suit got broken when he attacks the castle early in the film. You can actually see it happen. And they never had time or ability to fix it during filming. If you recall, that was a comment I made that it looked like his jowls or his cheeks were actually moving. And I thought it was purposeful. I thought it gave him more animation. But uh, apparently that was a... A mistake that happened on well, set. It, I didn't it know did that. give him more animation. He just, his jaw yeah. was broken. <laughs> yeah. His jaw is flopping around. That is his favorite Godzilla suit. He said it's known as Mosugoji is the name of the suit. Ah. He said also, if he recalls, the Mothra silk wasn't rubber cement, but was actually a form of liquid styrofoam. And finally, he mentions the Rosilicans that were in Mothra aren't just a U.S. parody. They're a country that combines the worst aspects of U.S. and Russia. Steve actually sent those to me personally on Facebook Messenger, but we have a variety of ways that you can leave feedback. You can email us, classichorrors.club at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group page, the Classic Horrors Club podcast. You can call us. We have a phone number, 616-649-2582. Are you ready? That's also 616-649-CLUB. Now, I mentioned that Facebook group page. We have some new members that have joined, and we want to welcome them verbally. We have James Hudson, Robert Brazell, David Tatarski, and Mason in Casey Ramsey. That's Mason in, not and, in case I wasn't clear. Mason in Casey Ramsey. Thank you all for joining, and please feel free to chime in with comments. Yes, welcome one and all. And Richard, I have a big apology to make. Last month's episode, kind of disjointed. We recorded at different times and out of order, and we made a failure to mention something. And that is to say hello and give appreciation to my mother and my brother, Jay. He has not said that he didn't listen and didn't hear us. Anyway, we appreciate them listening. And if you are listening right now, hi, Mom and Jay. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hi, Jeff's brother. I would give a shout out to, to my loving wife, Carla, who is usually along for the ride on these movies this month, for example, she joined me for premature burial. She kind of bailed on Haunted Palace. We started watching it and then I fell asleep about halfway through, not even halfway through, about 20 minutes in. Ooh, that's an interesting note. Uh, I'm going to pin it. And she ended up watching probably a good another 45 minutes. And then I woke up and I'm like, I got to stop this. She did not decide to finish the film. She doesn't like bad Vincent Price. She likes good Vincent Price. And she has a hard time when Vincent's being naughty. Any other old business? Anything that I uh, forgot or that you want to bring up from past episode? 
I can't think of anything. I just want to remind everybody to check out our video companion. We have a YouTube channel. You can find that at Classic Horrors TV. And as long as we're not blocked for copyright, you will find some video clips and some highlights from this as usually some other things that you won't hear here. So it's a companion. It goes with this to get the full experience. You should. I think we'll be okay on this one. There's no Toho Godzilla <laughs> copyrights. I ended up substituting screenshots for some of the live. I just had a feeling they would even somehow recognize those, but they didn't. Why don't we listen to our first trailer and we will come back and talk about the premature burial. Possessed by love. A man obsessed by terror. Only Edgar Allan Poe, who knew intimately the tortures of madness, could create such ever-increasing suspense. Only an artist of unique talent and unusual sensitivity could live so demanding a role. Believing he is destined to be buried alive. No matter who he destroyed. No matter how desperately he fought. His life became a nightmare of death. You're dead! Until reality and madness became one. His father was prematurely interred. I heard his voice. All right, then prove it. I will. You are about to enjoy an experience in extreme terror. I'm alive. Can't you hear me? I'm alive, alive, alive. Someone help me. Guy Carell lives in mortal fear of being buried alive. When his fiancée, Emily Galt, arrives and they're married, his fear turns to obsession. He begins hearing a familiar tune whistled nearby and seeing two gruesome gravediggers outside his window. Is his obsession becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy or is someone trying to drive him mad? Premature Burial from 1962 was written by Charles Beaumont and Ray Russell, based on a story by Edgar Allan Poe, directed, as we said, by Roger Corman, runs 81 minutes, and was released, the date I have is March 7th, 1962, by American International Pictures. <laughs> 
the date I have as well. Very good. I watched this on a Kino Lorber Blu-ray, a, a standalone. I know it's been in some probably sets and uh, midnight movie double feature. How did you watch it? I watched it on a midnight movie double feature. Oh, uh, nice. I believe Mask of the Red Death was the other movie that was on the Indeed it was. Set. Yeah, this is my first viewing of it. I'm also going to be referring to a book called Corman Poe, Interviews and Essays Exploring the Making of Roger Corman's Edgar Allan Poe Films, 1960 to 1964, by Chris Alexander, and a foreword by Roger Corman. This is a new book. It's a nice, not terribly detailed or deep, but a very nice little collection of essays and interviews about the Corman Poe films. So I would recommend it. Does it have a lot of good pictures and... and Yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, in the back, it's got a great appendix. It's got movie posters, but there's also covers of the comics that they did and even some shots of panels from inside the comic books and the paperback adaptations. They show the Raven here. Well worth it. And I don't think it was pricey. So this was first time viewing for you. It was not for me. This is one of a couple movies I remember watching on the CBS late movie. That's where I first watched Dr. Fives. And again, it's not so much that I remember watching the movie. It's like the commercials for the that they were coming up. And I, I distinctly remember Premature Burial, not details of the movie, but just the experience of watching it. I don't know if I've seen it since then, actually. May as well be a first time viewing. I think it does tend to get overlooked a little bit because it's the one that doesn't have Vincent Price. We're going to talk about that, I'm sure, comparing Raymond Land to Vincent Price. I think that's a bit unfair. I agree. To do that. I'm not because, sure. You know, what, what if? What could have been? Well, it's not. Yeah. And this is what we've got. So I'm more interested in talking about just Raymond Land and how he does in the versus like, well, if it had been Vincent Price. I agree. I, I actually like Ray Milland, and he's got some very legit horror cred. I mean, he's in movies that we've covered here on the show and, and some we haven't that I'll just talk about him now. I mean, he was in, we always talk about Charlie Chan films, right? He's in Charlie Chan in London in 34. So he's in one of the early Charlie Chan films, and he's got to be really young in that. The Uninvited is one of the all-time best ghost stories. It's a movie that absolutely holds up. A classic Hitchcock film, Dial M for Murder. And then, you know, some some lesser entries, but still fun, like Panic in Year Zero. X the Man. Yeah, a man with X the Man with X-ray eyes. Cheesy, but it's that one's a fun one. Frogs, which we've talked about. Love uh, frogs. The thing with two heads. I don't know if that could get any cheesier. <laughs> I had forgot that he's in Sherlock Holmes and the Mask of Death from 84, which actually has Peter Cushing coming back. Hmm. It suffers a little bit. It's not the best of Sherlock Holmes and, and Peter Cushing's age. You know, it definitely shows in this film. Ray Milland did a lot of TV work. He was in Battlestar Galactica and a lot of other things. So he's a fine actor. And I, I think the way he approaches the character, I love Vincent Price, but I think he would have changed the tone of the film around and I kind of liked the way that Ray was was at times kind of lower key but then kind of got all ramped up and it would just kind of get wound up and and go into this panic mode and well, I'm sure that any other actor could do it I, I I liked what Ray did 
Roger Corman himself said in one of those special features I mentioned that Ray had a different quality. He was a leading man in Hollywood style, a little more charming. Vincent was more quirky and played character roles. Also, Roger Corman mentioned that, I know, AIP sort of had a thing, or Roger Corman did, of taking, primarily because they were cheaper, but stars that had, the shine had worn a little bit off their star. They were still marquee names, but a little bit older. That was Ray Milland, and this was his first association with AIP, which many of those movies you mentioned were from AIP. So it was a good career-building thing for him to be in this movie. The I don't know what movie it was, but... Roger Corman said his last like big Hollywood role was 58 and he hadn't had really anything since then. And I think it's interesting that sometimes people talk about well the downturn when actors go with the B films and such. But isn't it interesting that if you were to ask the average person today, a lot of times those A-list films from the 1950s might not even be talked about today, might not even be readily available, but if you ask about frogs or the thing with two heads or <laughs> the man with x-ray eyes, a lot of people would know those, right? Sometimes those B films kind of got poo-pooed back in the day, but they have a lot more longevity, well-remembered and well-loved today. Roger Corman, I mean, definitely a, uh, a producer, a salesman of a sort. To hear him talk about any of his movies, except I think there's one that he said was his only movie that didn't make any money. In all of these features, he talks about how profitable, how successful, how young people were lined up around the block to come see older actors in these scary movies. And why would kids be interested in old gothic tales? And I always am a bit skeptical, like how popular were they really? You know, how much is being embellished? And I got a very interesting fact. So House of Usher, which was the first of the post cycle, which supposedly and not saying it wasn't, but was very, very successful. And that's what started this whole series. Did you know that it played most of its East Coast run on a double bill with Psycho? Wow, I did not know that. So that's got to inflate your box office numbers, I would think, to be playing with Psycho. So it, I, I just thought that was curious. You know, Had that not happened, would it have been as much a success? Would it have made as much money? I think that kids, if you look at this particular era, for example, I mean, kids loved going to see these movies. And I'm not sure that they even necessarily maybe even knew who Ray Milland was or had seen anything, but it was, they were scary movies, right? And, and they might know the name Poe. And, you know, certainly they'd recognize a Vincent Price or somebody. But I think kids at this era, there was just a love for whatever the monster movies were coming out or the scary movies. I think there's an innocence there with that. But that created the whole Monster Kid era. Going back to the Universal films, which are having the whole new kind of lease on life at this point by the re-releases and with famous monster magazines and stuff, kind of reliving the movies from the past. But you had all these new movies coming out as well that were being covered there's just a magical time. I think it was everything was just in sync at that point. Kids could go to these movies back then and they wouldn't necessarily see anything bad or offensive, which is why I think monster kids were such a thing because there was so much coming out and so much that was targeted at them. Definitely the timing had something to do with it. Well, one thing in modern movies that we didn't have back then is the jump scare. And that is something that I thought was unique 
in this movie, there were three times I jumped, which I assume if I jump, we call it a jump scare. Uh, <laughs> maybe no one else did, but I certainly did. And I that's not something I remember ever doing in a Corman Poe film. But they had some definite jump scares when uh, he went upstairs and there was the rocking horse. Yeah. That was, and then he looked out the window and there was the face yeah, there. That's that was truly yeah. startled me. So I think that's something unique about this. So how did you like it, by the way? I actually enjoyed this one. Is it going to be a movie that I'm going to go back to every year? Like I do a lot of the Vincent Price ones. Admittedly, probably not. But I did enjoy it. Raymond Land was good in this role. Is it the best of the Corman Poe films? No, it's not, in my opinion. But it's a good movie. Hazel Court, who's always fun. We'll do a pseudo spoiler alert here. You know, I just knew when she came on and I just started watching her. I'm like, yeah, Hazel Court always has something up her sleeve. I was kept thinking, you know, what? When's the ball going to drop here? But then you had the sister, Kate, played by Heather Angel, who also just... Ed Herring. Yeah, yeah, had had the snarl all the time. Yeah, that was almost too obvious. Good supporting cast, but not necessarily A-list actors. The character of Dr. Gideon Galt, Emily's father, played by Alan Napier. Who uh, I did not recognize. And I mean, this was pre-Batman. I recognized his voice at first because I've seen him in other films. And I looked and I'm like, that has to be him. And then I looked at the cast and was like, yeah, a few years before. before well, he- only four years. I think he maybe had a beard in this. Well, he didn't have glasses. So the glasses, I think, make him oh, look man. a bit different. I think that and he plays Alfred kind of less agile, I think, than than I think what he was really in real life. Because Alan Napier, he's got some legit horror cred. I mean, when you look at what he's done, everyone knows him for Alfred and Batman. He was in The Mole People, Night Gallery, Alfred Hitchcock, Thriller, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Going even farther back, he was in The Uninvited with Ray Milland. He was in Isle of the Dead with Boris Karloff, House of the Seven Gables with Vincent Price, The Invisible Man Returns, which is also Vincent Price. Emily, something's going on with her. Spoiler alert, her dad's not entirely innocent either in all of this. So, Yeah, and that's one of the things in Roger Corman talks, I think in both of these movies on the special features about how House of Usher like laid the structure. He put all of his thought, all of his planning into that first film, and then he just built on them. And I will say also borrowed from them. Quite often. So a plot where there's a twist and somebody is in on it, driving somebody mad or something like that. That's common in several of these movies. So I expected that. And the first time that Hazel Court looked in the mirror because the doctor was coming and she was primping her hair, I thought, okay, she's in cahoots with the doctor and they're trying to drive him mad. But then there was obviously no connection between her and the doctor i mean even when no one else is around and it's just the two of them they're not having an affair you know so i thought well maybe it's not her and then like you said the sister is lurking around and then you kind of think too well maybe no one's driving him mad you know so anyway i thought it was interesting you sort of expect what's coming but i at least wasn't really sure that that's what was going to happen I won't spoil it, but the very end, the way things kind of get wrapped up, actually, I didn't see that coming. Spoiler alert. Yes, we do see somebody, quote unquote, buried alive. 
how it kind of plays out as we get towards the, you know, wrapping up the story and the big reveal. There, there was definitely a few plot twists and, and, and a few things that happened that I actually didn't suspect. That was a pleasant surprise. Yeah, to- actually, like two thirds of the way through and I forgot this completely. It, it sort of changes and it becomes really, really dark. Uh, that does. ending is even just that shot. Pretty brutal. It, it, it is. It definitely takes a dark turn in the final act. A little unexpected. There's darkness in certainly the the Corman Poe films to an extent. In some of the films, others, there's really nothing dark about The Raven, for example. I don't know. I'm trying to think, you know, is this the darkest of the Corman Poe films? I kind of want to say yes. Ray Milan isn't necessarily a bad guy in this one, really, but he's troubled. I'm not certainly not afraid of it like he was, but who wants to be buried alive? I mean, isn't that sort of in the back of your head? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen when we die, but I don't, I don't. So it's one of those things where I never think about it until I see it in a movie. And then yeah. it's like, but, but I, I like that's disturbing. I get and, claustrophobic when I start thinking about it. I always, for me, that claustrophobia kicks in when I think of the thought of like going to jail, that terrifies me. You hmm. know, that makes me want to be a good boy because the thought of like being in a jail cell and just not being able to get out of that tight little space, there's your sink and there's your toilet and there's your bed. Have a good day. And I would prefer to be by myself than have a roommate because gosh knows what'll happen then. Yeah. And I really like what they do with that because he definitely becomes obsessed. And, you know, there is a line about, I think you said it in the summary, you know, where what he's doing could be good for him, but he's turning it into an obsession. Specifically, what happens is, and I, I like this, he comes up with fail safes for if it does happen, all of these ways the and there's backups to backups to backups. Good. He's doing something about it. He doesn't rest after that. You know, he's still no. obsessed by the fact that it might happen. And when they go through the scene where, of course, all the fail saves are failing him. Well, you know? and I have a question about that. Not a spoiler. You could probably see it in the trailers. This is one. It's a dream sequence. And yeah. you can tell because there's these colored yeah. lenses yeah. and everything. I was just curious if we didn't know that was a dream, if they hadn't used those techniques and we thought like that had really happened to him and everything was really failing. And then, you know, something happens, you find out it was a dream. I just was curious how that would have played. They would have to do it a little differently because it is filmed very dreamlike. Well, and there's all sorts of cobwebs and stuff. So obviously those cobwebs wouldn't have been there in reality That's because it looks like it had been abandoned forever. There was a way they could have done that to kind of fool the audience thinking, oh my gosh, you know, he really is. And this has happened. And then come out of it. They would do that now in films. I don't know that they did that back then. The kind of, you know, that's a cheat. And some people hate when they do stuff like that. The dream sequence that looks like it's reality. I think it's overused now, but 1962, it would have been pretty cutting edge if they would have done something like that, I think. And I guess it does serve a a narrative purpose. I mean, that, kind of demonstrates why even with all of those fail safes, he still is obsessed and still terrified because every one of those things could fail. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love how he describes his fear of being buried alive. 
Can you possibly conceive it? The unendurable oppression of the lungs, the stifling fumes of the earth, the rigid embrace of the coffin, the blackness of absolute night and the silence like an overwhelming sea. I don't know if that came from Poe or not, but if not, it came from Charles Beaumont and he's not too shabby himself as a writer. Uh, that, that is terrifying. When you, when you think about it that way, this film was originally made outside of American International Pictures because Corman was having a bit of a dispute with the producers, Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson. He went ahead and going outside of AIP to make the film meant he couldn't use Vincent Price. That's why Vincent Price isn't in this, because Vincent Price was under contract to AIP. So Ray Milland is the one that is chosen. So he went to get his financing from Path A Labs, which was wanting to go into distribution. And then when initially, I think I think Roger Corman, you know, said that like day one, Sam Arkoff and James Nicholson kind of show up and reveal, ah, this is what's going on behind the scenes. Sam Arkoff apparently traveled to New York and kind of played hardball with Pathé Labs and say, yeah, if you do this film, we're not going to give you our regular business. And that would have crippled Pathé Labs. So essentially, Pathé Labs sold the production and they acquired, AIP acquired it and ended up working with Corman all over again. And of course, revealed that basically day one of production according to corman they showed up and was like hey best of luck with the film and he thought they were being nice they're like no you know we have the film his desire to do something else ended up working for them anyway and i encourage everyone to listen to roger corman tell that story it's so funny he such a diplomat plays down his troubles with aips like oh you know these things happen. You you get into financial disputes. You know, like yeah. just oh, you know, no big deal. He doesn't burn bridges exactly. Burn and then uh, when they show up on the set, he tells it in a really really fun way. A million times better than I could. Yes, I agree. Well, no, I wasn't. No, I, I, just I agree. There's a way because Roger Corman's voice, and I picked this up in watching the extras for both of these films. I got to. I'm just kind of closing my eyes. I'm like, he has a tone to his voice in a way that he talks that is very much like George Takei. Mm. And there, there's a similarity in it said, and it, some of it is just the way that the speed that he talks and the way that he talks and he kind of has his voice and he is just very purposeful in everything that he says. It, it, it makes for a good storyteller because it's like, it really does kind of pull you in and engage you. And obviously he has seen it all and done it all at this point. And actually, I think he was on it last year. He was on Joe Bob, I believe. Despite his advanced age, he is still really sharp. At least he was as of last year, which is good to see. And I think technically he's still producing films, although I don't know how much he's actually that heavily involved in the production side anymore. First of all, that does not count as a Star Trek reference, so don't even try it. And second of all, you didn't think of that. Every time I hear him, I think about all that he accomplished as a producer and getting these movies done quickly and on time. And I envision someone being able to do that has to be someone that's barking orders and being very strict, sort of. I'd like to see him at work and see how he is. I've never heard anything negative about him other than he's a cheap guy. I don't know. That's. Is that really negative or that's just, you know, depends on your perspective. One might say he's being frugal. 
And you were smart. Exactly. And you know what? Roger Corman has been making movies, what, since the 50s? And it's 2023, and he's still active in the movie industry. And so many of his contemporaries are long since gone, long since dead. By God, Roger Corman is still there and still a part of Hollywood and still being respected. That speaks volumes. Yeah, I really like this movie a lot. It does feel different. Primarily, it doesn't end with a fire with the same footage of the same beam falling into the burning true. house. So it that it does like, oh wait, this isn't a Poe movie. We don't we're not ending with a fire. This is true. We talked about Ray Milan, Hazel Court. I mean, plays Emily. We've talked about her before. She's got some legit appearances around this time period. Of course, Curse of Frankenstein, The Raven, Mask of the Red Death. She's always fun and always has something up her sleeve whenever you see Hazel Court. Richard Ney played the character of Miles Archer. He was her former love heir. Lots of TV work for him. He was in The Outer Limits, so not a lot of, of genre stuff. I did find out something fun about Heather Angel, or Angel, however that's pronounced, played, played Sister Kate. She was in some movies around this time period, Mystery of Edwin Drood, Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, The Undying Monster. She was also in a Sherlock Holmes film called The Hound of the Baskervilles. This is a 1931 adaption of Hound of the Baskervilles that apparently was missing for a number of years. And then I guess the film existed, but there was no soundtrack to it. I guess the discs went and the film had somehow gotten separated. I guess in 91, someone found the discs and were able to marry the two together. Apparently it is sitting in the BFI archives over in the UK and this aggravates me that why have we not seen this film be released? Apparently, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London is the only ones that have acquired a copy and have shown it. And of course, we talked about Alan Napier as Dr. Gideon Gold. Uh, yes, this was from a story by Edgar Allan Poe, so there is legit Poe cred here, written by Ray Russell and Charles Beaumont. And Charles Beaumont, 22 episodes of The Twilight Zone is about all you need to know about him, a well respected writer. Ray Russell, only eight writing credits, but he certainly loved the genre because he was involved in Mr. Sardonicus, X the Man with X-Ray Eyes, Zots, The Horror of It All, and Chamber of Horrors, just to name a few of his very few credits. Produced and directed by Roger Corman, executive produced by Sam Markoff and James Nicholson, featuring music by Ronald Stein. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Ronald Stein when we get to The Haunted Palace. But I will give some of his credit here right now is that he did do a lot of other films around this time period, as well as on into the 80s. And one in particular I've got to ask you about. He did the music for Day the World Ended, It Conquered the World, She Creature, Attack of the Crab Monsters, Not of This Earth, The Undead, Invasion of the Saucerman, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, The Terror, Dementia 13, and Spider Baby. Pretty impressive list. He also did the music... For Frankenstein's great aunt Tilly in 1984, (laughs) starring Donald Pleasance as Victor Frankenstein. Really? I know. It's got a 2.4 on IMDb. I have to see this movie. 
Next month on the Classic Horrors Club podcast, Frankenstein's great aunt Tilly. But Donald Pleasance as Victor Frankenstein, a modern day Victor Frankenstein, I guess. I don't know. I've never heard of this film. I have yet to, to try to seek it out. Obviously, you've never heard of it either. Never. And it's piqued your interest as well. So, yes. Curiosity has definitely got me. Now, Ronald Stein did a lot of serviceable music, but I think his music in this movie is good. His music that he did for the Haunted Palace is amazing, in my opinion. The only other little tidbit I've got is that assistant director on this was a young Francis Ford Coppola, who was Roger Corman's assistant, his little gopher at the time, doing pretty much whatever Roger Corman told him to do. Francis Ford Coppola was, was learning from the master at this point and was just about ready to start around this time period, Dementia 13, which is really his first directorial debut, full-fledged, I think. I want to dig a little bit deeper on the cast. The two men that play the gravediggers, Sweeney is John Dirks and Mole is Dick Miller. Dick Miller, of course, big well-known character actor that has appeared in a lot of movies. Absolutely. And then John Dirks, I don't, Corman said something about him on the special features. I don't really remember other than just familiar face, been around. You've probably seen him in something. If you peruse his resume, a lot of horror movies, probably would recognize him. It's out there, uh, not as readily available as some films, but you can catch it streaming on Plex. It is on Tubi. It's also on the Criterion channel, if you're a subscriber to that. It's also on the Roku channel. And Kino Lorber's Studio Classics definitely would recommend it. I enjoyed it. I'll definitely check it out again. I really, really like it. And that may not be as apparent now, but when we talk about the next movie, I think maybe um, you'll see. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. The Haunted Palace. You, who find a kind of macabre boyishness in the horrifying, will enjoy yourselves as in ecstasy in The Haunted Palace. Starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. And intriguing Deborah Paget, whose appealing beauty inflames the blood of the bloodless. Charles, please. I... Well, I've been very busy, but I'm back now. Charles. Charles, no. I have the whole no. night before. His violent, torturous passions inflict both pain and terror. Lon Chaney, carrying on a family tradition of masterful motion picture horror, while the strange and feared new master of the haunted palace reaches for the skeleton of one long dead. Just like the others. Really, this is our great. Let's 
Surely after all these years, I'm entitled to a few small amusements. Charles Dexter Ward inherits his great-great-grandfather's estate in Arkham, Massachusetts, and arrives with his wife, Anne, to claim it. He's soon mesmerized by a painting of his ancestor, and his personality begins to change. Are the torch-bearing villagers right? Has the sorcerer Joseph Kerwin returned from the grave to fulfill the curse he made while being burned at the stake 110 years earlier? Richard, before we get into the movie, I would like you to set the stage and tell us what else was going on in 1963, a very, very good and important year. <laughs> I wonder why, but yes, I would have to wholeheartedly agree. You better. Well, we are going back to, I guess it would have been Labor Day weekend, 1963, so we're recording it. 60 years later. So this is the 60th anniversary of the Haunted Palace. I just I just now realized that. And if you didn't want to go see this movie, and I don't know why not, you could have been listening to the radio. I don't think Casey Kasem was around yet, but they still had the Billboard Hot 100. So here's a few songs. A couple of rising songs on the charts included, I'm so tempted to sing this one, <laughs> Blue Velvet by Bobby Vinton. Beach music was in its infancy, but the Beach Boys had had a few hits by this point. They had hit big with Surf and Safari in 1962. Early in 63, they had Surf in USA. So new on the charts in the late summer of 63 was Surfer Girl. <laughs> That's a trend. Uh <laughs> Early on in the Beach Boys career, but things were definitely happening for them. And then uh, Be My Baby by the Ronettes, a very popular tune, was also new and rising on the Billboard Hot 100. Here are the top 10 songs for the week ending August 31st, 1963. I know all of these songs after I listened to a few of them. Number 10, Denise by Randy and the Rainbows. But this is not Randy Rainbow from YouTube. <laughs> Maybe his great-uncle Randy or great-grandfather. I don't know. But Denise. Now, this is 63, a transitionary period of time for music because the Beatles were changing the whole sound. You had the British invasion. You still had some 50s music happening. And it's definitely got a 50s sound to it. So, number nine. More by Kai Winding and Orchestra. Number eight. Mockingbird by Inez Fox and Charlie Fox. Now, number seven, I know you've heard this song. Judy's Turn to Cry by Leslie Gore. So, you know, Leslie Gore's big hit, you know, It's My Party and I'll Cry yep. if I want to. Well, in that song, Judy took her boyfriend. Well, this is the sequel to that song. Mm. It's Judy's Turn to Cry because <laughs> she's getting her boyfriend back in this song. So we also had some early folk music happening around this time because, you know, coffee houses and poetry and beatniks and stuff. So we had at number six, and I think this classifies in that genre, If I Had a Hammer by Trini Lopez. At number five, another folky song, definitely Blowing in the Wind by Peter, Paul, and Mary. Not sure you can get any more folky than. 
Peter, Paul, and Mary. Number four, Candy Girl by The Four Seasons. Number three, we have Fingertips Part Two by Little Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder's first hit. And he was little, so that's why they called him Little Stevie Wonder. Number two, back in the days when novelty songs would hit the charts, Hello, Mutta, Hello, Fada. Oh, yeah. A Letter from Camp by Alan Sherman. <laughs> Number one, My Boyfriend's Back by The Angels. That's the top songs for the week of August 31st, 1963. These are the top box office hits for the week of September 4th, 1963. Number one for the ninth out of 16 weeks was Cleopatra, top grossing film of the year. Hmm. Other big hits of 1963 included The Longest Day, Lawrence of Arabia, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Big year. Yes. Other horror movies of 1963 included Black Sabbath, The Raven, The Haunting, The Birds, Matango, and Kiss of the Vampire. Little you said Mantango. I'm like, That's not a horror movie. I was thinking of Mandingo. <laughs> no Mandingo, Mantango. <laughs> Two different things. <laughs> yes. If you didn't want to go to the movies and if you didn't want to listen to the radio and you wanted to stay home and be a couch potato and watch TV, well, Labor Day weekend 1963 was still a land of repeats. But we were just a few weeks away from the new fall television season, so... Once again, I decided to take a look and see what the fall schedule was for the three big networks, as in the only three networks in 1963. <laughs> Definitely some interesting shows on this list. Over at ABC, we had 77 Sunset Strip. Hmm. This was a big hit back in the day. Ran for six seasons, 206 episodes. Burke's Law, which was also like Sunset Strip, was kind of a popular Crime drama series, 81 episodes in three seasons for Burke's Law. And then it came back in the in the 80s for a revival series. The Farmer's Daughter. Have you ever heard of this one? I don't. It's vaguely familiar. Like, I wonder if we've even mentioned that before. Maybe. It's a comedy, and it was a very popular comedy series, but it it's had no life after it left television it had 101 episodes, so it, it passed that magical 100 mark. It had three seasons, but for whatever reason, The Farmer's Daughter just did not have any life after it left television. Hmm. Then, if you were in the central time zone, at 9 o'clock, it was the fight of the week. You got a chance to see a boxing match on primetime television. And if the boxing match ended short, then at 9.45, you had a great 15-minute program Make that spare 15 minutes of primetime bowling. Yeah. On a Friday night, you know you were at the bottom of the social <laughs> butterfly if you're at home watching bowling on TV. Okay, over at CBS, things were a little bit better over at CBS. We had, uh, and now this one kind of interests me, I, and I've never heard of this show. It's called The Great Adventure. This was an American history anthology series, and it ran only for one season, 26 episodes, but it was a variety of guest stars, and every week it would be a story about American history. Hmm. Kind of interested in that. Route 66, very popular. Four seasons, 116 episodes. Uh, I've seen quite a few of those over the years, including the one with 
Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney and Peter Lorre. We also had The Twilight Zone and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour. So NBC, a little different over at NBC. (laughs) We had, (laughs) and as you know, it's different times. International Showtime with your host, Don Amici. A program about the European circuses. Yes, your chance to watch a circus on television, but not just any circus, a circus from Europe. Hmm. This actually ran four seasons and 70 episodes. Wow. Noteworthy that British comedian Benny Hill made his American debut in one episode. Then there was Bob Hope presents the Chrysler Theater. This ran for four seasons, 107 episodes. This was an anthology series. This was in color. Big Ooh. deal, 1963. Except when Bob Hope would do one of his specials, and those apparently weren't in color yet. Those were in black and white, which I thought was interesting. This one, a sitcom series. Have you ever heard about Harry's Girls? I don't think Nobody so. else did either. It ran for 15 episodes and disappeared. Didn't even have people in the cast that I recognized. <laughs> and then there was the Jack Parr program. That Jack Parr was the second host for The Tonight Show. He succeeded the original host, Steve Allen. He left The Tonight Show in 1962. NBC said, no, we don't want you to go, Jack. We want you to have a primetime show. Sound familiar? Kind of like what they did with Jay Leno back in the day. So they gave him the Jack Parr program. Uh, he moved to primetime in the fall of 1962 and was on air until 1965. And the Jack Parr program was also in color. That was what was happening on Friday nights on TV in the fall of 1963 if you didn't go to the movies. Well, let's go to the movie, though. Let's go and see The Haunted Palace. Yes. It was written also by Charles Beaumont, based on the poem by Edgar Allan Poe, very loosely. (laughs) The story, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, again directed by Roger Corman. This one runs 87 minutes. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Huh. That's about right. Yeah. Okay released by American International Pictures. I have the date, August 28th, 1963. I'll add to that real quick. August 28th, 1963 in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, okay. Thank you. Do you know where it was on September 11th, 1963? New York? Kansas City. Oh, my goodness. Kansas City had an early premiere date for the Haunted Palace. Hmm. What do we think about Haunted Palace? I will say the reason I questioned the time is for some reason, well, not only just because of how it feels, but to me, it's a little long. I, I For some reason, I thought it was more like an hour 40, but it's not. But I mean, when you consider that premature burial was what, just like an hour 20 and this is push an hour 30. It, there is a lot of atmosphere and mood and i'm not discrediting that but that beginning when they're walking through the tunnel and going down and that like lasts forever it's weird there's a lot of plot there's a lot that happens but that kind of pace just kind of stuck with me and it is a little slow to get started i mean you have the the opening sequence which is the the flashback we see vincent price as joseph Kerwin, and he's doing naughty things ultimately gets burned at the stake. Typical fashion, if you're getting burned at the stake, you issue a curse. And you also scream, and this is going to sound like a stupid question, but when we see movies and witches are burning at the stake, are they 
I don't recall them screaming, which makes no sense, but because you probably would, but for some reason that stuck out to me, maybe because it was Vincent Price, but that, I mean, that was a loud scream. And also maybe we don't see the scene go on quite as long. I, you know, I think sometimes depending on the burning, sometimes there's a scream. Usually we see women getting burned at the stake. So I, I, we don't often see a man getting burned yeah. at the stake. Yeah, uh, I didn't mean to take away your, from your point though. Yeah. The, the point of him making a curse before that happens. Honestly, it's what I would do if I was being accused of something falsely and I'm getting burned at the stake and I'm like, well, there's no getting out of this. I'm going to terrify the heck out of those people and I'm going to issue a curse. It's going to be a nasty curse and it's going to be a multi-generational curse. Even though I know there is no curse, they'll be thinking about it the rest of their lives and their children's lives. You remember that warlock Richard we burned at the stake, he told us. And I'd probably do it something like it, it's a curse that wouldn't happen in a, like a week or a month. I'd be vague about it. Some point in the future, you know, on, on the third Wednesday of the full moon in the seventh month, I would get creative with it. And then I'd have to scream as they lit the mat. If you don't mind, I'd like to read the curse because I just think it's. Oh, absolutely. So it, Edgar, it is a good curse. Yeah. Uh, Edgar Whedon asked, have you anything to say, Warlock? And he says, only this. As surely as the village of Arkham has risen up against me, so shall I rise from the dead against the village of Arkham. Each of you, and he goes on to name each person, and they show, all of you and your children and your children's children shall have just cause to regret the actions of this night. For from this night onward, you shall bear my curse. That's a good curse. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good curse. Yeah, pretty strong start. And then you're right, the pace slows down which admittedly is about where I fell asleep. I figured out that I fell asleep about 20 to 22 minutes into the movie, which is right about the point that they've been wandering through town and now they're getting to the house. It's a bit slow. Then it kind of picks up a little bit once Vincent Price's character of Charles Dexter Ward begins to be possessed by his ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. But even then, there are some slow periods of time in this movie. It makes it sound bad, but I mean, the movie does kind of meander. Yeah, and I don't, like I said, there's a lot happening. I mean, he starts getting his revenge. People start getting killed. But it does, for some reason, this was the night of the super blue moon or whatever. So I was pausing it and going out to look at the moon. But it was like, oh, I'm thankful for a break. One thing that is really weird about it being feeling slow is because the music is so terrific. And I know you're going to talk about it. It's just incredible. And I feel the same way I felt about when we watched the Nightwalker with that Vic Mizzy song or the tune. And so I'm like building this perfect horror movie soundtrack. And we've done so many movies. I can't believe that I haven't really noticed anything as notable. But this this music's fantastic. I take some of this music for granted. And we shouldn't, because sometimes some of this background music is really good. But I think sometimes it does definitely stand out more. I think with Ronald Stein, comparing what he did for Premature Burial, I thought was serviceable. Good, but it didn't necessarily as like stand out. His music here stood out. It was dramatic and it was just kind of sweeping at times and it was very Lovecraftian. It is not what I would think of Poe. 
when I think of Lovecraft and the old ones and Cthulhu, this big rising up theme, definitely what he does here in the Haunted Palace. And there's just numerous moments throughout the film where it just really stands out and is really well utilized and isolated. We get a sequence where it's just not in the background. There's no dialogue. The music is playing. And I have to think that was intentional because if you didn't have a good score, you wouldn't do that. But if you do, you want to kind of let that score take you in the moment, much like John Williams does. How many times in his films, it's like, you don't need dialogue. All you need is the scenery on the screen and John Williams music, and you've got a moment. And oftentimes one of the most definitive moments in the movie. You know, Did you and, think and it course, was overused at all? I don't think so, personally, I, but I, I might either. be biased because I really enjoyed it. So every yeah, time I've read up, the, that as a criticism of it, but and, and at one point I thought, hmm, I wonder. But then as I really started paying attention, there are long segments that are dead silent. So it's not like it's through the whole movie. I, I just think it's I think it's the best thing about the movie. One of the best things. There are some other things I really like about this film. What else did you like about it? I do like the Lovecraft connections because there's a lot of firsts in this film. This really is the first film to adapt a Lovecraft story, even though Lovecraft was overshadowed by the fact that this is Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. So where does that come from? Well, there is a poem called The Haunted Palace that is actually within The Fall of the House of Usher. and Part of that poem is what is used at the end of the film. There's there's a quote. While like a ghastly rapid river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. Not exactly sure what that means, but it looked cool at the end of the film. And that's about the extent of the Poe connection. The rest it really is Lovecraft. And in fact... Roger Corman wanted this to be a Lovecraft film, but AIP didn't think it was worth the risk because Poe was a guarantee. There are several things, of course, that we are seeing for the first time. The Necronomicon, Cthulhu, and uh, Yogg-Sotha, the first time they were mentioned. We get a vision of a creature that I don't think has ever... I don't think they named it, did they? It was just the... Because they mentioned Cthulhu and Yogg-Sotha, but... Obviously, that wasn't Cthulhu, and I don't believe it was Yogg-Sothoth, but it was a creature from another dimension, and we don't get to see it much. They use some effects to kind of make it a little bit wavy, so you couldn't quite see how cheaply it was made. You know, we get to hear a lot of roaring going on, but that's about the extent of it, and I think, you know, they maybe move him, move his arms a little bit from scene to scene, but you never actually see him moving other than the waves. That's a little disappointing. But I did like that set. That set design was was pretty stellar. Going up those stairs and getting to the top and you're chaining the woman and then there's this pit and you got to open up the iron gate. And of course, then within is this creature. And the set design, the art direction and set design was by Daniel Holler, who would later go on to direct two more Lovecraft adaptations. He directed Die, Monster, Die. In 65, which featured Boris Karloff and Nick Adams, and of course, The Dunwich Horror in 1970 with Dean Stockwell. The work that he does here on that main altar set was was pretty impressive. 
sometimes when they do scenes like this, it's like if they go on the cheap and you get to the big climactic moment, you know, it's like, ah, it's a bit of a letdown. But like the pendulum, for example, is pretty impressive because it just seems so big. And I that's the feeling I got with this movie. A couple of things. The version I watched, uh, and did you watch Kim Newman's introduction to the movie? I did. I, I watched the the show. Yeah, he, uh, he talked about the the creature and like you can freeze the frame and you still can't really tell what it is. And <laughs> it does, though. It really reminds me of the creature of the Black Lagoon. And he even mentioned that it may have been an old mask of the creature or something. I don't know. The other thing is the sets. And I thought this was very interesting. I think this might have come out of the book. You know, one way that Corman could save money was to reuse sets. And I think this probably stands true as the po films went on, they became a little grander. The sets were a little, well, that's because when they were done with the flats, you know, the pieces of sets, they would like put them in the warehouse or something. And the more films he did, the more pieces there were. And so by the time he got to this, he had a lot more And these sets are supposedly like the biggest, grandest ones of the whole series. I, I don't know that I buy that because like you said, pit in the pendulum, I don't really think you can beat that smart way to do it right you got a budget but you keep what, what you did in the old movie and then reuse it and then hey it up a little yeah yeah we get to add a couple more pieces to our big lego set it keeps expanding. another thing that daniel haller did and this i could never be a filmmaker because i don't do not understand how you build a set to force the perspective yeah uh, like you build it like gradually out of scale, I guess. And then in the camera, it looks deeper and bigger. They did that in that famous scene in Exorcist 3 to make the hallway look mm -hmm. particularly. And they did this, I know, at least on the outside in the village to make it look bigger and little tricks of the trade, I guess, that they really exercised in this one. You get fascinated when you you hear about that and, and you, people who actually were in the midst of it to kind of talk about it whether it's on camera or in print, because that's a, an art form that you don't even really need now. And, you know, cause everything is CGI. You don't need to worry about perspective because you can just sit in front of a computer and create this magical world, which looks great, but it, there's a, a level of, of mastery of the stuff you hold in your hands that is slowly dying out or is already gone because the people who actually did it, that part of filmmaking is has been replaced. Can you tell me if this is pulled from another film because number one, I don't really recall that this palace is on a cliff, but there's a shot like looking up and you see the, the rock wall and the house on top, it fills the screen and then lightning flashes in the background. That's a great shot. I'm sure it's a matte shot. The, the, some of the mats in these are beautiful. Yeah, I don't know if that was used in another film. I mean, obviously, there's a lot in The Raven and The Terror that match up because they made one right after the other on that extra three dollars, three three days and 50 cents that they had. Some of the mad shots of Arkham look mm -hmm. very convincing to me. It's always, you can't imagine this town on a sunny spring day when... Mm -hmm when the flowers are out and butterflies are floating around and everyone's in the village happy because it's a miserable place. With a oh, mis both of these movies I didn't mention in the other, the fog. I mean, he didn't spare any expense on the fog machines. That's for sure. <laughs> oh no. Very, very atmospheric, very gloomy. I always think about that in some of these films, 
A lot of horrible things going on here, but is it always like this? Or what about on that Saturday in the third, you know, weekend of April when the flowers are in bloom, you know, is Arkham <laughs> a cheerful place at any point? Not a place you would want to plan a fall vacation. Well, I don't know. You might. Well, that's true. I'm, <laughs> I <laughs> say that and I'm like, I would though, because it's like, I often think about, I said this last weekend, it's like, ah, oh, the days are getting shorter. Soon it'll be dark at five in the afternoon. I kind of love that time of year. Oh, me too. I love the short days and the crisp fall air. And Talk about burying the headline. I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet that Lon Chaney Jr. is in this. Yes. Yes. Lon Chaney Jr. as the assistant, the man Friday, the Igor, if you will, the character of Simon, Simon Orn. I read this and I'm like, no. Boris Karloff supposedly was considered for the role. But because he had fallen ill during the making of Black Sabbath, had to turn it down. I don't think that Karloff would have been good. You know, Karloff wasn't always taking full-fledged roles at this point. I mean, the terror was being kind of an exception where he was kind of the star. Um, well, he was the star of that one. Uh, the Raven, he shared that spotlight clearly with Vincent Price. Karloff and Price are same level to the point where they have the big battle at the end. Ultimately, yes, Vincent Price gets the upper hand, but they're considered equals. And even at times, Karloff is kind of mastering the situation better than Vincent Price is. Here, he would have been definitely playing second fiddle to Price in all ways. Lon Chaney, I think, is good for what he does. At this point of Lon Chaney's career, clearly the alcoholism had ravaged his good looks that he did have at one point some 20 years earlier. Cheney was in the last, well, he was within the last decade of his life at this point, but he was still prolific. He was still doing work. And I think right up until mid to late sixties, Cheney was still able to take care of business. I read something and I can't remember now, but Cheney was struggling during the filming of this maybe some depression and his alcoholism. I think it was Vincent Price giving a quote about it. And it might have been in the booklet that came with the Vincent Price collection. The only thing that throws me a little bit is is makeup in this. Oh, yes. Thank you. So the, the makeup was by Ted Coodley, who gave kind of a greenish skin tone, because that was to kind of symbolize that they were possessed. It worked on Vincent Price, I think. Did it? I think it did to to an extent. The reason that it didn't work for Lon Chaney is it wasn't complete. Hmm. I mean, it covered his face, yeah, but you could see around his neck that they didn't they didn't do the full makeup job. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? I didn't like it on any of them. I thought it was very distracting. Look, I mean, here's your curse of Blu-ray and high definition and everything. It just uh, looked yeah. just green. It looked out of place. I don't. I don't think that it worked. Now. Corman praised it. Best makeup guy, you know, can get the most done in the least amount of time. And yeah, well, yeah, I see that. On the other hand, I really liked the faceless people, the the mutants that were walking yeah. the street. Eh, they're not great compared to the green. I thought they were good. We don't know why his face turns green. It's possessed. Maybe only his head is possessed <laughs> and right up into his neck yeah. and then everything below. <laughs> well, you know what does look great? in this movie, regardless of any color they would apply, is Deborah Paget. 
Yes. Yes. She absolutely- we have talked about her before and it just, she has, it hasn't really struck me as it did during this time. What a beautiful woman she was. She doesn't have a lot of film credits because she left acting at a fairly young age. Uh, and this wasn't really her last film. Ten Commandments in 56, From the Earth to the Moon in 58, Tales of Terror in 62. And really, she she kind of disappeared. And the reason for that is that after this film, she appeared in an episode of Burke's Law in 1965. But she met and married a Chinese millionaire in 1964 and didn't have to act anymore. And, and that was it. They divorced in 1980. She became a born-again Christian, and she eventually, she never got back to doing film or television per se, but she did host a program on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, which is a Christian network. Eventually, she retired from that, and she's still alive. She's 90 years old and living in Texas as we speak. This is a perfect segue. I want to read this quote. So in the Vincent Price collection, the Blu-ray set from Shout Factory, volume one is still available. Now, volumes two and three, I believe, have gone out of print. There's some rights issues and such. Volume one had gone out of print, but the reason it went out of print very quickly was because it originally included some introductions that Vincent Price did for Iowa Public Television, and it was called the Vincent Price Gothic Horrors, and it was done in in the early 80s, 82, I believe. They included these introductions on the original, and then all of a sudden, the rights ended very quickly and like almost overnight the set went out of print and they announced on the internet yep we're not selling these anymore and i hadn't bought it yet they're available now without those introductions however the introduction for the haunted palace is actually on youtube it's still on top factory or screen factory's youtube channel in any case there's a great booklet with the blu-ray set that did come with the reissue and the booklet I should probably give credit to, it's by author David Delval. So here's what Vincent says about his working on the film, and specifically the, the other women that he worked with, not Deborah Pageant, but Kathy Merchant, who played his mistress. I really enjoy the acting process. You know, leaving yourself in the makeup chair, then stepping into these fantasy roles In playing the warlock, I had some real help from our makeup man, Ted Coodley, who created a green green skin tone, which also hardened my face a bit, especially around the eyes and mouth. This allowed me to develop the character as Kerwin, who was as ruthless and cruel as could be. I certainly got into character while wearing such a ghoulish makeup. Poor Lon Chaney had to stay in the makeup throughout the filming. I remember the young woman, Kathy Merchant, who played my mistress in the film, causing me no end of amusement. She had this great buxom figure to begin with, but the wardrobe heightened her already ample cleavage, giving her more room than the Rocky Mountains. And every time that I would glance in her direction, my eyes would head down that mountain along with my concentration. She proved to be a great sport. I kidded her once as she remarked that she had no dialogue. So I told her with what she had going for her there, there was very little that needed to be said which made her laugh. I will always remember these films with great pleasure, even though they were hard work. We all had such a good time making them. What a tough job Vincent Price had working with these two women on on this film. And clearly he had a good time. One point I thought that 
Deborah Padgett was like the reincarnation of her because they look similar. I think they both had dark hair. Similar, and th- yeah. That wouldn't have made any sense. But that, that does make me ask a question. One of the things that Surprise isn't back just to get revenge, but they were working on summoning these gods, you know, these elder gods. And apparently Simon Lon Chaney Jr. and the other person, uh, Jabez Hutchinson, played by Milton Parsons, it seemed like they were working with him a hundred years ago as well. Yeah. Were they like, I don't know, immortal or had yeah, they it didn't really also from that. some type of death? I didn't feel like they had been resurrected. Maybe they just kind of were always there, just waiting, you know, all this time, because I obviously knew how much time had passed. And knew that eventually he he would come back to the, to this place. Yeah, they didn't really expand on it's that. It's like but... they just sort of emerged from the walls. Yes. Like the first time Lon Chaney appears, he's just there when they turn he's the lights there. on. He's standing yeah, there. And same thing with this third one, Jabez. It's like they mention him. We've never heard hide nor hair of him. And all of a sudden he's just there. Could be yeah. something interesting there. Yeah, but we don't know. Kind of left up to our imagination. I think we're ready for the cast. Gosh, we've never talked about Vincent before. I did want to mention, though, what other movies he did this year. I think we mentioned this earlier, but The Raven, Diary of a Madman, Twice Told Tales, Comedy of Terrors, and Beach Party, all in the same year. That's crazy. Very prolific time period for Vincent Price. He was, I think, more busy at this point in his career than at any other point. Very, very busy. You've got Deborah Padgett as Ann Ward, which we've talked about. Lon Chaney Jr. We don't really need to say anything else about him. He was also fairly prolific in the 1960s. Despite his age, despite his alcoholism, he was still finding work right up until the point of Dracula versus Frankenstein. When he was clearly at the end of his life, he could still get work. And a lot of it was because he was Lon Chaney Jr., we have Frank Maxwell, who played Dr. Marinus Willett and Priam Willett. Lots of TV work, including The Outer Limits and Alfred Hitchcock. We have Leo Gordon, who played Edgar Whedon and Ezra Whedon. Lots of TV work. He was the voice of Grimes in The Raven earlier in 1963. He was also in Roger Corman's 1962 film The Intruder, which features William Shatner, who played uh, Captain uh. On that little Star Trek series. I've never seen The Intruder. Have you seen it? No, but that is the one movie Roger Corman said lost money. You've really got to be in the right frame of mind for that one because it's got some really harsh language. It's a film about racism and some of the stuff that Shatner says in that in that film is apparently kind of rough. But I've always wanted to see it. I have it. I've just never watched it. And then, of course, we have Elijah Cook Jr. as Peter Smith and Micah Smith who, of course, is in films we recently talked about or will be talking about. He was in Rosemary's Baby, Messiah of Evil, House on Haunted Hill. And yes, he played Samuel T. Cogley, attorney at law, in the first season Star Trek episode, Court Martial. There we go, my official Star Trek reference. Francis Ford Coppola, again, involved in this production. This time around, Francis Ford Coppola actually was involved a little bit in the script. So Charles Beaumont wrote the script, but there was some work that needed to be done after he had already left the production. He had gone on. I think he was writing something for Twilight Zone. I think that's what Roger Corman said. He was he was busy, occupied elsewhere. Now, Francis Ford Coppola 
we didn't mention this earlier. I mentioned that he did Dementia 13 in 1963. So that was the year, same year that he had his kind of debut separate, really, from working under Roger Corman. Going on to much big success, much, much big. That's one. <laughs> much big. Uh, <laughs> bigger success, more success, larger success. The Godfather trilogy, Apocalypse Now, and horror cred for doing Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1992. I got to just, again, dig just one more level deeper at John Dirks, who I mentioned in the original one, is in this, and then Milton Parsons, who I mentioned. That's another one of those faces that Roger Corman talks about. Look at his list. He's been in many, many horror films. I'm sure character actor just in the background, but he's got a very distinct look about him. This one I will watch periodically over the years. And I will say that I don't love it any more or any less as I continue to watch it. I enjoy it. I appreciate it because of its Lovecraftian connections. I like Vincent Price in this. I like the look of this film. It's not perfect, as we talked about. It's got some moments where it drags. The music certainly enhances some of these scenes. Ronald Stein does an amazing job. To me, it's it's very much... a kind of a middle-of-the-road film. It's it's a good film. It's not the best of the Corman Poe series. I'm, I'm trying to think what I would consider to be the least of the Corman Poe series. It might be this one, I guess. When I say that I like some of the other Corman Poe films better, doesn't mean I don't dislike either one of these. I enjoyed Premature Burial, and I enjoyed Haunted Palace, and I probably enjoyed them equally. They're solid films for me, not 100% perfect on either one, but nothing that really pulls me out of the moment or I'd say, man, that's horrible or that's really boring. No, I, I love both of these films equally. Yeah, I failed to mention this was my second time watching it. The first time I watched it was after a Monster Kid Radio episode on it. I watched it then. I liked it, I think, better then than I did this time. And I definitely prefer, well, or not prefer. I like them both, too. I don't mean... I know I kind of dogged on this a little, but I, I do enjoy Premature Burial quite a bit more than this one. Both solid films, though. I, I think you can't go wrong watching either one of these. If you've never seen them, I certainly recommend you seek them out. I failed to read my quote from this book, and I would still like to do that. And I think it kind of ties everything together and we can kind of move forward from there. This is an, one of the interviews with Corman by the author, Chris Alexander, and he's asking him, uh, you have discussed at length your interest in and influence of Freudian theory in the first two Poe pictures. Do you feel the premature burial is reflective of those theories as well? He says, to a degree, yes, absolutely. The explorations of the unconscious mind and the setting of the action primarily on sets in fabricated interiors, that's all there. But I was also developing my own theories based on other books. I was reading on psychology with the driving theory, theory being that terror or horror is really just the psychological recreation of childhood fears and fantasies. When a child is alone in their dark bedroom at night and they hear thunder and wind and rain, they become very frightened as those are forces they do not understand and they have very limited ways in which to cope with them. A parent can soothe them by saying that it's only thunder or it's only lightning to help normalize these things, but that only goes so far. These experiences mark a child deeply, I think, and I think the ways in which we react to horror and the unknown in film is simply revisiting those times in childhood. 
I'm not going to read the whole book, I promise. But one other thing. Uh, So the author asked, so then do you think horror pictures are, as many have said, a form of catharsis for the viewer? In a way, I suppose they can be. The horror film exposes those ingrained fears and identifies them. And they strike a nerve because most of us were raised in traditional Western ways that have had common shared experiences and anxieties and respond to uniform provocations. Sometimes we aren't even conscious of them, but I think the horror film can draw them out. I thought that was interesting. I'm always asking, you know, why do I like horror so much and looking for reasons? Not that there have to be any. And you could apply them to all the the horror films. They kind of give another little meaning to them. Are you awake still? (laughs) I'm going to say, I mean, awesome quotes. And it just another reason to to seek out that book if you don't have it part of your collection. Let's take one last break and we'll come back. We've got a fair amount of new business and we actually have some news in the new business, which is not always the case. All autumn, the leaves change colors and begin to fall. The kids go back to school. Pumpkin spice becomes its own food group. And little ghosts and goblins are on the streets begging for candy. But something sinister awaits. Back in the woods, among those dead trees, sits a foreboding, dilapidated manor. You can't resist. You must go inside and return to... The House of Frankenstein. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. The Supermates Podcast presents four spine-tingling episodes covering your favorite classic horror films featuring these iconic stars. Griffin Dunn and David Naughton. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Yes, that's right. Bela Lugosi. I am Dracula. I bid you welcome. Claude Rains. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. <laughs> and Peter Cushing. Plus, your favorite superheroes versus classic monsters. I understand your concern, Mr. Wayne, but I don't think you need to worry that Wayne Tech is responsible for this invisible man. But I seem to remember last year hearing something about an invisibility project. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com or your favorite podcatcher for the 10th annual journey into terror at the house of Franklin Stein. available in pumpkin spice flavor. Richard, believe it or not, Hammer Films is back in the news. I've got this little quote to read. This happened just two days ago. The iconic UK studio known for gothic horror has been acquired by theater titan John Gore and will soon announce a new slate of films. With plans to capitalize on nostalgia and the Hammer name, Gore aims to celebrate and preserve the studio's legacy while ushering in a new era of storytelling. Yes, I think that's exciting. However, I feel like this is at least the third time we've kind of gone through this where someone has purchased Hammer and nothing really came from it. I hope this is something. There's nothing that replaces the original Hammer. Sure. The most recent incarnation of Hammer did put out some good movies. The Woman in Black. They had a cool logo. It could be something new and something different, but I just want them to develop a brand that lasts. If Universal can't do it, 
Let's have Hammer reboot all their horror monsters. You can do reboots, you know, modern day versions, if you will. Continuations. How about a modern day Captain Kronos, you know, that ties into the original movie? Hell, I'd be there for that. There was missed opportunities with The Last Owner. So I hope that this new version of Hammer, which is at least 3.0, hopefully they do more with the brand. And hopefully they create the brand, that, like you said. We know that their first movie is one that we we talked before we didn't even realize was originally, well, I don't think it was originally attached to Hammer, is the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Eddie Azard. Could be an interesting start. Open to seeing what Eddie Azard can do with that. We move from the world of theatrical film to streaming. And I don't know if anybody used the streaming service Kino Cult, but that has been rebranded the Midnight Picture Show. Apparently, it's a free streaming service featuring more movies from the deliciously dark and devilishly bizarre side of cinema. Moving from the world of streaming to the world of podcasting. Those of you that are used to listening to us on Stitcher, you're not doing that today because Stitcher, as of, I believe, the 28th of August, is no more. And most of the whatever is on Stitcher went to the sister app, which I did not realize is Pandora. Welcome those of you that may be hearing us for the first time. And then finally, another form of media, print media. I just wanted to let everyone know Little Shop of Horrors issue number 49 is coming out. I think it's available to order now. Cover story is from The Haunting, the original fantastic movie, The Haunting. And it looks like they've got quite a a few pages devoted also to the evil of Frankenstein. I know I'll be ordering mine sometime this weekend. We've got some interesting physical media releases announced. Arrow Video is releasing a super deluxe version of Barbarella that's going to come out November 28th. And then this, Richard, I'm really struggling with this, Inside the Mind of Coffin Joe. A big, huge box set. I've seen one Coffin Joe movie. I really liked it a lot, but I just don't know. It's a hundred bucks, beautiful set worth every penny, I'm sure. Oh, you're shaking your head. No for you, huh? Have you seen any of them? First, I, when I saw that, I like, ooh, you know, but then I really got thinking, I, I have seen bits and pieces of a couple of, of Coffin Joe films. I was interested in it, but man, there is some interesting stuff in Coffin Joe films. But a lot of uh, these films, they're Coffin Joe-ish because there's like some anthologies and stuff. And there, there's definitely, it, I dived in and was reading the descriptions of the movies and trying to find out a little bit more about them. And I have to admit, might not be my cup of tea. There's there's some pretty odd descriptions. So awesome that this set is being released. I think it absolutely was needed because I don't think there really has been any formal releases as expansive as this. I, you know, I'm going to have to probably pass on this. I need to obviously research a little bit more. I think that you are a bit more accepting of some of the fringe, some of the, <laughs> the fringe films, the sleazier films. There are some sleazy films in this set. Hmm. So before you, you spend $100 or more, do some research, read the description of all the movies in there. It may be totally up your alley. We have from Kino a couple of and movies I'll just mention real quick. Lorna the Exorcist from 1974. That is a 
Jess Franco film. We have Black Sabbath, the classic we may have even mentioned earlier with Karloff. And then It, the Terror from Beyond Space, all on Blu-ray. I believe It, the Terror from Beyond Space was maybe on a double feature with something. There's some reason that makes me compelled to look at it, even though I'm I think I own it in some type of format. As of this moment, Diabolic DVD is having a sale with some good prices. That uh, is how I first learned about that Coffin Joe set. And if anyone is going to pull the trigger, uh, they seem to have a good price for that. And then on oldies.com, they have a sale on Blue Underground. It's a flash sale. I think it goes through the middle of the month. 50% off movies such as Daughters of Darkness, Shockwaves, Maniac, The Prowler, Death Dream, Toolbox Murders, and Dead and Buried, among them. Those are some of the the Blue Underground releases that have come out. I think I'm going to order Dead and Buried. It's always been a little pricey, but it's only $14.98 now. Tell us what you're doing on your blog for Halloween, Rich. Well, only if you're going to tell me what you're doing on on the blog. You and I I will. Well, why do you act like it's... Well, I, you haven't told me yet. You oh. were, we worked together last year for our countdown to Halloween, but we decided to go a different route this year. And I think you inspired me because it's like you wanted to go, you wanted to go your own way and leave me behind. It's, and I thought, okay, that's cool because, well, only because as people will hear, we're going to be still working quite a bit in the month of October. We are. We we've got a lot coming up. This is probably going to be, dare I say. One of the busiest Octobers for the for the blog and, and certainly for the podcast. And that's a cool thing. I'm, I'm excited about that. Over at my blog, in October, the countdown to Halloween, I've got different themes depending on the day of the week. I can share this news here. So Sundays are going to be what I'm going to call Domingo del Terror, basically Terror Sunday. Going to be covering uh, Spanish horror films or Mexican horror films uh, like The Man and the Monster and the films from the Mexico Macabre box set and uh, a surprise or two along the way. Uh, Mondays are going to be set aside for the podcast, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to be highlighting some of my favorite old-time radio shows that I have not talked about on the on the blog before. Wednesdays, stirring it up here. I'm gonna. It's gonna be horror comic Wednesday. I'm gonna be covering some horror comics um, from DC and Marvel. Not sure how I'm gonna do that yet. Maybe highlight the stories and the artists and and show some images from it. More visual probably than than writing a lot about that. Uh, Fridays and Saturdays are going to be theme week or themes depending on the week. So there's gonna be some universal horror. Some Euro horror, some forgotten horror films, and some other miscellaneous films throughout the course of the month. Kind of stirring it up on a daily basis is just going to depend, but there is a theme to it depending on the day. And, and a lot of stuff that uh, none of us really, other than maybe a couple of things we're going to be covering on the podcast, all of it's going to be new. And some movies that I've been waiting to see for a while, stuff I've had on my to watch pile. And I thought, Perfect opportunity to dive into that. So what have you got going on? I have taken the month of September off, but I am not relaxing. I'm putting a fresh coat of paint on classichorrors.club. I have had some ideas for sprucing it up. Hopefully October 1st, when it relaunches, it'll look a little bit different, a little more modern, cleaned up. 
I'm also participating in Countdown to Halloween. My theme is every day of the month, including podcast days, I will be writing about a movie that opened on that date. I was looking at my list. I didn't know it'd be as diverse as it is, but that's really a good way to get a little bit of everything. Some classics, some more modern, some of our favorite actors. That's my countdown to Halloween. How modern are you Are you going? Nothing more modern than we would do. I just meant okay. like there's a 30-something year, 1930-something film up to a 70-something. Didn't know if we were going to get the new Exorcist film. And no. No, I might do the new Taylor Swift film, but... Oh, that is scary. What is this thing we're talking about on Mondays? Well, for the first time, we are going to be doing five consecutive weeks of podcasting. We are going to be doing five episodes. There are five Mondays in the month of October, and we're gluttons for punishment, so we are going to dive in. Each of these five episodes, we will be covering only one movie, and we will be having a guest with us. Some of our regular features will be put aside for these five weeks. We're going to be focusing on the, the movies and the guests and, and also getting to know them a little bit. I'm only going to tell you what we're doing the first week. The very first week, Monday, October 2nd. So every Monday in the month of October, look for a new episode. If all goes as planned, our first guest will be writer and director Ansel Farage. He has done a wide variety of films over the uh, years, most recently Todd Tarantula. The guests are getting to choose the film they want us to talk about. And so it's a pretty diverse selection that we've got so far. And we're coming right out of the gate with it's a 1972 film called The Other. It's a film you had seen before. I had never seen it. It is out on YouTube at least as we speak right now. So seek it out. The other 1972, there's a really good copy of it out there. I think you'll enjoy it. At the end of each episode, we'll then share who the next week's guest is going to be and what movie they've chosen and where you can go ahead and see it or purchase it to get ready for the next episode. Going to be a really fun 2023 countdown to Halloween. The other is on Blu-ray, I believe, from Kino, Lor Kino Lorber. Oh. Uh, that is the version I own and, and watch. And I do want to say with Ansel, when we have guests, we encourage them to do what we do, which is go off on tangents. This is a higher level than a tangent, really. But Ansel told us kind of some insider scoop on what's going on with the writer's strike and the actor's strike. So I know I usually think of this strike as affecting like the A-list stars, and I've never really thought about how that trickles down, I guess. I think it's very interesting. It's an interesting perspective. It didn't really fit with the episode and with these movies. So we are going to attach it at the end when you hear the song that uh, we go out on. I'll just play a few seconds of that, and then we will hear Ansel's about 10 minutes. Well worth your listen. We wanted to include it somehow and thought that this might just be the best way to do it. Yeah, I think they're an absolutely wonderful insight from somebody who's in the industry, right? He's an indie filmmaker, but even he is seeing the effects. Richard and I sit around and we bitch and moan because Star Trek Strange New World might not be on till 2025. That means nothing compared to someone who's in the business who knows and how it affects their livelihood. And then come back next month and hear him talk about something a little less heavy, and that is the movie The Other. So now we go out on a song, The Haunted Palace, 
This is by a gentleman named Johnny Ridley. It's from the 2005 album, The Songs of Edgar Allan Poe, released by Prairie Land Music. Thank you all for listening. We look forward to an exciting month of October. Take care, everyone. In the greenest of our valleys, by good angels tenanted, once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace reared its head. These streaming platforms, Disney, HBO Max, I refuse to call it just Max. All of these streaming studio platforms, all of the top executives with the salaries that they make, if you're really hurting for money and, and you have to raise your prices, excuse me, what are you doing? I'm sorry I'm getting so mad, but like this affects me too, because you don't know, you guys don't know how screwed I've gotten by several streaming platforms that post my films. What are you doing that demands that high rate of a salary? yearly and then your bonuses at the end of the year so yeah you're going to raise your your subscription fee why don't you lower your salary for like doing nothing except kicking back in your office and occasionally making a phone call and oh i'm a master of the universe why don't you lower your salary rate and then maybe a lot of issues in hollywood might get fixed and we wouldn't be gouged as well on our subscription fee you're gouging the people that are making you rich with the quote content, which I hate that word content. It's not content. And you're gouging the, the audience. It's expensive enough as it is to go to the, to the theaters. Like I used to go to the movies all the time growing up. I have seen like, well, last year I saw two movies in the theater. I saw the Batman, which I hated and I love Batman, but I thought this was just like, why do I need this three hours of just like, I've seen it done better. And I saw Babylon, which I love, which was also three hours, but you know, whatever. But like, it's expensive enough as it is to go to the movies. Now you're going to gouge it on streaming. You're going to yank the, the content, uh, you know, in a couple months because you don't want to pay the residual for that original content. All of this goes back to this is why you should support physical media because it's also not going to get censored. Disney Plus censors a lot of their work. Also, saw recently. Well, Disney owns Fox. The French Connection is a Fox film. The French Connection was censored, which annoyed me. So physical media, you buy it, you own it, you can archive it. It's yours to have for forever. And, uh, and going back to me as an independent filmmaker, if you, you know, buy the physical media, it helps me out more than the three cents. I kid you not, the three cents per view that I get for any streams film of mine didn't used to be the case, but then in the pandemic, all the masters of the universe decided they needed more money for themselves. So they ripped us all off, all of us filmmakers. I'm very mad. I'm sorry. Like you can, I'm sure no. you guys can feel my rage in Midwestern <laughs> America right now. I'm screaming at my phone. It's got to change. It has to change. And also with the AI, because a lot of this strike is also with the artificial intelligence yeah. takeover of the writing and the acting. I mean, the whole thing, it's, it's really bad as long as it takes that's been the, the guild's mantra right now. We'll fight as long as it takes. However, the financial side of this, as long as it takes, they want to drag it out for until people are literally, as they said, on their knees and bankrupt and financially ruined. And I can tell you personally, the strikes, we need to fight. We need to change things. But like the strikes financially have really affected even me personally. The money is not coming. 
the money wasn't coming before, but now like one thing affects the next, which affects the next, which affects the next. This prop house that we just rented from, they're like, we're in fear of going under ourselves because we are not getting productions to come in and rent. So we can't keep open as long as we can. We have to put staff on, not necessarily lay them off, but it's coming close to that. The restaurants, the caterers, my father, who's an architect, he does jobs for Universal Studios and for Walt Disney Pictures and office work and, and not like nothing cool, not like a production designer. <laughs> I wish I could brag about that, but like, you know, he'll do an editing suite or something like that. My parents have been stretched financially just because of these strikes. Everybody has been affected by these strikes. So as yes, these things need to go on until it's resolved and resolved rightly, but at the same time, the studios do not give a damn. The powers that be have so much money, they do not care about anybody else. We all do not matter. They're destroying this town, Los Angeles, which is an industry town. They're destroying it financially. They're destroying so many livelihoods. And they don't care. It's a shitty business. It was a sh- I'm sorry to use this language, but it was a shitty business before, and it's gotten worse. So when people ask me, what's your advice if you want to go into movies? I say, don't do it. Find something else. Like I, I, I'm cursed that I, there's nothing else that I would rather do. And I've done it. I've bust tables. I've managed kitchens. I've bartended. It's awful. But I picked this over that. So don't go into the industry unless you absolutely like cannot do anything else. And really, like, I mean, like cannot do anything else. There's plenty until AI takes all the rest of those jobs. There's plenty else out there to do. Yeah, like I said, I'm sorry for being so angry. Anyway. Yeah.